Hey, welcome back to the Dropping In Surf Show. My name is Rob Case. I'm a paddling technique coach located in Northern California. And today we're going to talk about paddling. We're actually going to talk about some data that I've been collecting in my level two course over the course of the last few years. Um, and specifically two different metrics I want to talk about today uh, and some interesting findings or results. I still think that more data can be collected, but there are some interesting trends that are coming out. Uh, so we're going to talk about the data. I'm going to show you, show you and share with you the data. But we're also going to talk about how does this data really impact catching a wave specifically. Because in my level two course, that's really what we're talking about is catching a wave. Uh, a lot of the technique needs to be learned in level one, but how it impacts you catching a wave is level two. So what is it that we are collecting that I have collected in level two? So essentially what it is, it's this, this system that uh, this world-renowned swim coach uses to assess stroke force. So the amount of force that you push during your stroke. Not only does it collect just the force, it collects the progression of the force from the start of the stroke to the end of the stroke. It collects things like the average of the curve. So it basically collects a curve. It collects an average of the curve. It collects the peak of the curve. It collects the time that you're in the stroke for during the underwater pole part versus the recovery and of course the total time and there's another metric that it collects and processes that is the multiplication of two of those metrics that are collected now what i also do is i collect video at the same time that that data is collected so having the data when you match that data with the video you also get information on the orientation of the hand and the arm during the stroke instead of just the curve itself except just the the data itself and we're going to talk about why that's very important in terms of the effectiveness of a stroke versus an ineffective stroke um, when you combine the video with the data you also get the timing of the stroke at different uh, parts of the curve um, so, for example, if you're pushing too hard too soon, you won't really know that until you match it with the video. You can kind of see it on the curve, on the data, but you, uh, you really can't conclude it until you match it with the video. You can see slipping. You can actually visibly see slipping in the video. You can also see it on the curve itself. And slipping, I've talked about in, in other podcasts um, and why slipping is no good. I, I've done a more recent blog post so you guys can go to that blog to learn more about slipping uh, and of course uh, attend the level one course that that also talks a lot about it and then the other thing that that matching the video with the data really helps with is is you can see where the strokes overlap and what the recovery is like what the setup and the ending is like uh, because the in fact the end of a stroke actually affects the beginning of the next stroke or 
or the beginning of the stroke affects the end of the stroke as well. So everything's kind of compiled and cumulative uh, based on that. So today of those pieces of information, we're going to specifically talk about peak force and impulse. Impulse is the metric that I described is combining two other metrics together. It's multiplying two metrics together to get impulse. But um, let's get into it. Let's get into some of the data. So what I have on the screen, and I'll describe it to those of you that are just listening, is I have data collected on peak force. Now, what is peak force? Peak force is it, it, when they map the data on a curve, peak force is the highest that that curve gets. Uh, but we map not just the force, it's force over time. So at the beginning of your stroke, if you're starting out really light and then you build it to the back, that's ideal. We want a curve that goes and progresses up uh, to a max in the back part of the stroke with the right or arm orientation um, as well. And so the peak force is just whenever that curve peaks out, that's the peak force. So could it be in, uh, you're looking at curves and you're looking at this data and I will describe the, the data for you in a second, but we could be looking at this data and being like, oh my gosh, 70 pounds of force. That is an enormous amount of force that someone's pushing. They must go so fast, but that's not the whole picture. That 70 pounds of force could be too early in the stroke. It could be too late in the stroke. It could be in the wrong orientation or direction. It could be down. It could be up. It could be left. It could be right, right? Our goal is to move forward, is to accelerate forward. That's our goal. And so the biomechanics of our arm have to be a certain way for us to take advantage of that kind of strength. So right now, when I'm covering some of these numbers, we haven't talked about, we're not associating these numbers with a good force curve or a good arm orientation. We're just looking at the data and saying, wow, that's really strong, or wow, that's not so strong, or wow, that's an interesting trend that we're seeing. So what I've, what I've done is I've just collected what is of all the individuals that I've tested of all of them, of all of their peak force that has been analyzed of an individual stroke. So for an individual individual stroke, what is the absolute highest peak force? What is the max of the peak force that they have found And and for all individuals, the highest that has been recorded that has come through is 71.1 pounds of force. Now that that's pretty darn high uh, in comparison to the swim world, because I do have metrics to compare it to the swim world. And the metric I'm looking at has data based off of what they call, you know, the average swimmer versus the more competitive swimmer versus the less competitive swimmer. So like the less competitive swimmer might be someone that just kind of swims laps. Um, the average swimmer would be somebody that swims laps, but sometimes is on a team um, and is at kind of the the average team level. And then the more competitive would be like the, the elite swimmers uh, in the country. And so it's their averages, not their max of everybody, but their averages 
are 34 less competitive swimmers. So those are just the lap swimmers, 40, 30 pounds of force, 40 pounds of force for the average um, run-of-the-mill you know, swimmer on a swim team or or somebody that doesn't compete at the highest of levels. And then the stroke force at the more competitive levels are 50 pounds of force. Now, in addition to that, there's some data that I've read that the Olympic swimmers are beyond that, probably in the 60 to 70 to 80 pound range uh, for the absolute top, top, top 1% of swimmers. Uh, but we're looking here at, you know, I'd say the average is around 40. The most competitive swimmers are around 50. And the run of the mill kind of every once in a while are around 30 for the swimmers. So when we compare it to our numbers that we have here, so 71 pounds of force, that's up into the elite, elite, elite. But again, that was the one individual stroke out of all the data that's the highest. When we look at the average of the peak forces of an individual stroke, our average of our data set is 42.3 pounds. So 42.3 pounds we're looking at, okay, so that's the average of the swimmers, right around that 40 pound range. So we're, you know, it's it's somewhat of a good comparison in that sense. If we were to just to take this data and that data and combine it together, we're looking at we're, we're probably about the average swimmer uh, and, uh, and that's our average peak force of our data. I also collected data you know peak force data on individual strokes but also what is the average between the left and the right so the 71 pounds and the 42 pounds that could be someone's left stroke left arm right arm it's just it's just a single stroke so the max uh, of the average of both the left and the right was more in the 50 is 51.7 pounds of force and the average of both the left and the right was down in the 30s um so you know, again, we're looking at you've got an individual stroke that's in the 40 range, uh, the absolute top end that we've ever seen is 71 pounds of force. Um, but really, if we're looking at the entire test for each individual, we're looking at 30 to 50 pounds of force. That's really when we look at the average peak force, uh, both the left and the right, we're looking at 30 to 50 pounds. But so again, kind of in that you know, lower end, less competitive swimmers to all the way up to the more competitive swimmers. And that's, if we look at the, the, the surfers that came through and, and participated in the test, um, there really is a, a wide gamut of, of, uh, of experienced surfers with some new surfers. Now, what I've done is I've, I've collected data on what kind of board that they were riding. And this is generalized. Uh, so we have long boards, uh, which I'm defining as a board in which the surfer is out of the water and the board's water line is longer than that surfer can reach. A mid-length would be the surfer is somewhat in the water, but the water line is just about where the surfer could reach. And a short board is the surfer is obviously in the water. The water line is shorter than the uh, than the surfer can reach um, forward. So that's how I define those three categories. But what we notice in the data is actually really interesting 
this was something that the very first time I ran this using the system and I tested it on the first group, I noticed this because I had those first surfers paddle on a, uh, a longboard and I had them paddle on a shortboard for those that were shortboarders, only for those that were shortboarders. And what I found is with that very small sample size was that I found that the force that they produced was less for a bigger board than it was for a smaller board for the shortboard. So they were always put, they were always, every single participant in those early stages where I was doing that test, every single one was pushing harder on a shortboard than they were on a longboard. I found that really interesting. I was like, ah, I don't, you know, the data set's so small, probably doesn't mean anything. Now that I'm much further down the line, I see that the data matches with that. It still matches with that. When we look at the max of the peak forces, so the individual stroke maxes, a longboard maxes out at 46.7 pounds, mid-length 64.7 pounds, and a shortboard, the absolute max is that 71.1 pounds, the max of everything. The averages of the peak force of an individual stroke the longboard was 32.5 pounds. The mid-length was 44 pounds. And the shortboard was 45.4 pounds. So there, the difference between the mid-length and the shortboard were not all that much different. Found that pretty interesting. Then you have the max of the average of the left and the rights. Again, this buildup. Longboards were 31.9 pounds. The mid-lengths were 40.4 pounds, and the shortboard was 51.7 pounds. So you had this, this growing increase. And then finally, the average of, of, of both the left and the rights. Um, longboard to shortboard, 22.6 pounds, 30.2 pounds, and 33.2 pounds. So a lot closer of a distribution there. But just an interesting trend, I thought. Can we conclude that you don't need to push as hard on a longboard as you do a shortboard? I'm not really sure we can conclude that. But think about this. Let's say we take the board out of the equation altogether and we go back to those swim benchmarks. So less competitive swimmers were in the... 30 pound range and look shortboards around 33.2 pounds the more competitive um were you know around 50 and look the shortboards around 50 so between 30 and 50 right so you know the shortboards you don't have or swimmers don't have a board at all and shortboards i always say it's kind of like like assisted swimming in a way because there's not that much buoyancy but you do get some assistance from the board with a longboard it's vastly different you know longboard you're looking at the average peak force at 22.6 pounds of force that's that's the the average of both the left and the right that is extremely low like that's like they're barely pushing it at all and the max was only 31.9 pounds so it went from 22 to 31.9 that wasn't much at all the absolute max for longboards was 46.7 pounds i mean could it be that, hey, you just don't need to push this hard? Well, that would make sense. You know, we, we learn in level one about drag forces that we experience in the water. Longboards certainly experience less drag if you use it correctly. They can, you can experience a heck of a lot more drag if you don't use it correctly. 
that could be a big part of it. Could it be that I thought about this the other day. Could it be that when you're in the water more like on a shortboard or when you're swimming, you're more connected to that force and that propulsion. And so you're able to collect more. I don't know. The one thing that is constant throughout this is that drag is much more on a shortboard than on a longboard. And you may need to push harder to get through the same drag. I mean, that actually is the case. But something we learn in level one is if you are streamlined, even on a shortboard, you don't need to push that much harder to move through that space in the water. But an interesting kind of mind dilemma or a, a problem to, to think about out there. So from this data, we're looking at, hey, you know, at least with the shortboards, we're in that range of the swimmers. 30 to 50 pounds on average, um, maxing out at between 45 and 70 pounds of force. And the longboards are a lot lower than that. And the mid lengths are kind of right there in the middle. Now, I get a lot of I get a lot of clients um, that want to know how they stack up to the rest. And this is kind of the start. This is this is a significantly um, a statistically significant number of data points. Uh, and so this is kind of our, our starter of our averages. I'll, I'll continue to add to this and maybe we'll update it again next year, the year after to see, you know, how the numbers have changed as more and more people test and provide data. But right now, if you've done this, if you've taken level two and you have your numbers, you can now stack up next to these averages and see kind of where, where do you stack up next to that? Now, does that make you a better paddler? Not necessarily, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but, but it does give you something to compare. Now I get a lot of people that want to compare gender, uh, mostly the women, women are like, how do I stack up against the men? Um, so when we look at the men and I, and we, we narrow this down just to the men, um, you'll see you get there's where the 71.1 total is um their max of the average is 51 so they're between kind of that that 51 and 71 they're kind of setting that benchmark and the average of the peak force is around 30 34 um with the women uh, you can see it is lower um the the absolute max for the women is 36.6 the absolute max for the men was 71.1 um, when we look at the individual stroke max, um, for the women, it's 29.1 for the men, it's 47.4. So there is a, a fairly significant difference between the amount of force that the women push versus the men. Now, the coach that developed this system basically says that peak force is a, is a measurement of max strength, um, given the physiological differences between men and women, that kind of makes the results here kind of make sense. Does it really matter though, when we're catching waves? And I'm going to say that it doesn't because it's more about the effectiveness of the propulsion that you're pushing. You could be extremely strong, extremely strong. You can be that 71 
pounds of force. But if you're applying that 71 pounds of force in the wrong part of the stroke, at the wrong time, in the wrong direction, is it going to move you forward? Is it going to accelerate you in the direction you want to go? No, it will not. And so personally, what I've seen with the women that do this is that, yes, their overall force or average force is lower than the men's, but they're able to place their arm in a better orientation uh, and time the force at a better time than the men. Maybe it's just called finesse. Uh, Maybe they're just trying not to bully the water as much as the men. But generally speaking, I've seen the women be a little bit more graceful with their motion than the men. So what is ideal technique for effective propulsion? We've kind of alluded to it. You know, can we make these numbers happen at the right moment of the stroke um, so that we move forward? We absolutely can, and we can train our brain to make that motion over and over again. The most effective technique is going to yield us moving straight quickly without slipping. So that's kind of the high-level summary. So biomechanically, what does that mean? That means that our arm and our hand are vertical early in the stroke, and it remains vertical all the way through the underwater portion of the stroke. You build up that force to a peak in the back of the stroke, what I call the back propulsive phase, something that you learned in level one. And you're able to replicate that motion quickly, meaning your stroke rate is high. So those are really kind of the big things is the arm orientation needs to be backwards. You need to build up your stroke, prevent slipping, which we talk about again in that other blog. So we can talk, we, you can kind of reference that other blog video to learn what that is like. Uh, and you need to replicate that same motion without thought. Because again, the sprint, the power stroke happens when you catch a wave. If you're thinking about what your arm is doing, there's no way you're going to catch that wave because the, the sprint happens within about 0.9, so about 90% of a second, nine-tenths of a second, I should say, nine-tenths of a second to a second in duration. There's no way your conscious mind can, can process how your arm is moving. So you have to train it to become unconscious outside of the wave-catching environment. There's way too many variables going on in the, in the wave-catching environment. And that's, that's what we really focus in the level two is how do you do that? How do you make these numbers work over and over and over again without you having to think about it? And what you find is that when you combine sprint technique, effective sprint technique with good positioning and timing, you don't need nearly as much force to catch the wave. Because it's not about top speed, it's about acceleration at the right moment in time. That's the number one thing that makes catching a wave easy like effortly completely effortless so you don't need 71 pounds of force you don't need nearly that much if you time it right so 
we'll talk about some things that you can take away at the end of this, but just have a think on that. Are you bullying the water? Are you overpowering the water? Right? And are you pushing back all the way through? Or are you pushing left, right, up, down? Right? There are some, some key tales to that. So maybe let's go through some 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 examples. I got some I'll pull up some examples here. So if you're if you're listening, obviously this is not uh, something you can see, but I'm going to go ahead and just show you what an ideal curve of a of a swim sprinter is. And this is from the the world renowned coach that developed this program. And and let me let me also say that only a computer model can do this perfectly. Even Olympic swimmers can't make a curve quite like this. But what the curve is, it's like a lopsided bell curve. It goes up at the beginning slowly, but steadily, and then it peaks at the back, and then it has a steep drop off at the end. Okay, so it's kind of like a slant. What we're looking at is kind of a slant to the right, and then a drop off. And the two arms overlap, uh, the left and the right. So that, that's what an ideal curve looks like. Okay, that's an ideal curve. So let's take a look at some of the, some of the curves that we've seen, at least in, with people that have come through here. What I have on the, on the screen here is actually a pretty good curve. Um, and again, you're not going to get a great curve because only really a computer can make a perfect curve. But this is a pretty darn good curve. You can see that I've stopped it on the frame where the peak is at the back part of the stroke. The arm and hand are vertical. It has the, the curve has built slowly up to this peak, and then right after it, it drops off. It's pretty darn good. It's a pretty darn good, good curve. It's very effective. That is going to move that surfer forward very effectively. So let's take a look at another one. Here's another one. This one was shot in Indonesia on our trip. Another very good curve. It has a few hiccups in the beginning, but what I've done is I've paused it at the beginning part of the, the, the stroke, kind of more at the beginning, where the arm is in front of the shoulder still underwater. You can see the verticality of the hand and the forearm. It's been building up to that point. It does plateau a little bit before it gets to the peak, so there's something that we can improve on so that if we were to build this curve all the way up to the peak, all the way through without any plateauing and without any dropping, that would be more ideal because that would push the peak even higher. And then the drop-off has a little bit of a hiccup, but that's a pretty darn good curve too. Here's one where it, if you were just to look at the curve itself, you see that it builds up to a peak in the back and then it drops off. But this is the value of matching the video with the data. When we look at the video, look at the arm orientation in the video compared to where I paused it. So it's been building up to a point. It's about halfway through the curve. The arm is in front of the shoulder, but the arm and the hand are oriented in the downward direction. When you watch the video of this, what you'll commonly see is you'll see the nose of the board pop up when they get past this part of the stroke. So every single one of these curves on the left and with the right curves down here on the bottom, it has pretty good curve to it, but the arm orientation is wrong. 
They don't get vertical until uh, the last 10% of the curve, which happens at the peak. So the back part of the stroke is great. The front part of the stroke is hurting the height that they can go to. It's hurting really not only the height that they can go to, but, but more so the effectiveness of the forward propulsion. Now, the surfer accelerates quite quickly, but what we notice in the video is that that nose pops up and then they progress forward, and then the nose pops up, and then they progress forward, and the nose pops up, and then it progresses forward. So why does the nose pop up? Well, because they're pushing down significantly in the first part of the stroke. They're pushing down all the way up to about almost you know, 35 pounds of force in the downward direction. That's going to pop that nose up and then forward. Could it be cleaned up? Absolutely. And if it was cleaned up, would they go faster? Absolutely. So... Good curve, bad direction. This one's an okay curve. Good timing though, because the peak happens in the back repulsive phase. You can see that there, and they've already started the next stroke. So they're overlapping the strokes. I talk about force and stroke rate. When you can, there's really an stroke force is what we're talking about here. It's just how strong you're, and you're building your force through the stroke. But stroke rate is how quickly each stroke takes and how quickly the next stroke takes over when we talk about the sprint when we talk about catching a wave we really want to overlap our arms because we want an arm in the propulsive section of the stroke at all times and so this is a great example of the surfer starting the next stroke as this one's kind of in the middle near the end by the time the the, the left arm is down in front that right arm is going to be finished up and ready for the next one. And so it's almost like that that acceleration doesn't slow down. There's no deceleration or there's very little deceleration because you have two arms working together at, at taking that acceleration a little bit higher, a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Whereas if this other arm didn't go in, there would be more deceleration than when you overlap the arms. That's a whole nother podcast. I could show you data on that and the impact it makes on velocity. It's incredible what a difference it makes when you overlap versus not overlap in terms of outright acceleration and top speed. Sometimes you do that. Sometimes you don't, right? When we're catching a wave, do you want that? Yes. You want acceleration in a short amount of time, right? So really good, uh, like an okay curve. It has a little bit of flatness before it gets to the peak, but great timing. The back repulsive phase, they're peaking. Good, strong force. Uh, this is peak timing happens at the right time, but they slipped. And you can see the slip on this. Not only in the video, you can see all the cavitation around the arm. Uh, and this is kind of like after the fact. You can still see the cavitation around the arm, not in this moment. You can see the, the drop in force. It went from about just under 26 pounds of force down to about 10. You know, So it dropped more than half, and then it built back up. So what does slipping really do? Slipping prevents you from building this curve up to a higher peak when you slip. You lose that opportunity because you're not Marty McFly. You can't go back in time and redo that moment in the stroke. You got to take another stroke in order to do that. The problem with that is when you're in the moment of catching a wave, if you slip, if you mess up your stroke, guess what? You can't get that time back. And that time is extremely important when catching a wave because it's very limited.
Here's another one. Peak timing's really good, but you slipped. So super strong force. He's pushing over 40 pounds of force at the peak. He actually pushed up in that 60 to almost 70 range. But you can see just the big drop off in force. And you can actually visibly see it on the video right there, that cavitation. Here, the peak is too soon and in the downward direction. So you can see here, the peak happens right at the beginning of the stroke. And you can see the arm orientation in the video of it being down. So what would you expect? You would expect right after this moment for the nose to pop up, the nose of the board to pop up. And that's what was happening with the other surfer as well. Here's another one, peak is too soon. This peak is happening, even though the arm is oriented correctly, the peak is happening too soon. So you can have the arm oriented vertical and pushing backwards, but the peak happens too soon. So they're pushing too hard too soon. Usually people experience uh, elbow pain or shoulder pain when I see something like this. Here's, a, here's another one, pushing down at the peak uh, and very early in the stroke. Um, so there was some buildup that actually happened even uh, before this point. And then there was the pushing down and you can even see the slipping starting to happen there. And this is the same surfer, but with the left arm, same thing happening, right? So the peak happened even before this point. And you can see once again, the forearm and hand are, are, are flat. And so when they push down that hard, guess what happens? The nose comes up. And so very, very strong surfer, over 54 pounds of force on this one. But again, the wrong direction, not effective. This is a very strong lady surfer, woman surfer, that very, very strong. I think she actually maxed out at the top. And there's a little bit of slipping that happened early in the stroke. But really here you can see kind of, if you look at the, the video, you can see the palm oriented towards the camera. And so really the issue that was happening there was really the direction was more inward than down. We really want it backwards. Here's a slip mid-stroke. You can see the, the slope, uh, the, the curve drop mid-stroke. You could also see on the video, the air bubbles mid-stroke. This is another one that we swing inward too much. So the right arm swings inward and you lose force. So you can lose force, not just from slipping, but from, from swinging in too much. A lot of people put a ton of emphasis on curving the stroke under the board, too much curve and you lose force. And that was it. So some, some good examples, some bad examples. Just in summary, bad examples would be, you know, the, the, the curves aren't right. They're not progressing. Um, they're slipping. The arm and the hand are bad orientation, meaning they're not vertical and pushing backwards. Good technique would be a building up curve, a building up of a progressive force from front to back. Um, and the hand and the arm vertical from above the shoulder to as far back as you can get it pretty basic so that was a lot of information a little bit of time hopefully it helps we're going to go on to one more metric it's called impulse so what is impulse i'm going to scroll down here impulse is defined as the average force so the average force of the curve 
or the area under the curve times the seconds that you're in the stroke for. Not just what you're pulling for, for but the entire stroke. So from pull to recovery back to the start, that's the total time. So if you have an average force of, say, five pounds of force and you're doing it for a second, then your impulse would be five because it's five times one. I made that simple. I made that easy for me. What if your stroke was longer? Let's say it was two seconds long and you had five pounds of force, then your impulse would be 10 pounds. So what impulse really does in my mind is if your biomechanics are good, if your biomechanics are good, impulse is a fantastic metric to use to measure the effectiveness of your stroke at whether you're getting better or worse. Again, the big caveat here is that if technique is good, impulse is actually a very good metric to determine how far you're going to go, how fast you're going to go, how fast you're going to accelerate. So meaning if you are, if you have a buildup of your curve from front to back, if your hand and forearm are vertical from front to back, and it's building up, impulse is a very good metric because it takes the average force times the number of seconds that you're in the stroke for. Impulse for the sprint is always higher than impulse for your regular stroke. It's usually anywhere between 50 to 200% higher, depending on how lightly the surfer is doing their regular stroke for. But what's weird about this, that metric that I'm, that I'm talking about, is one could say, well, I'm just going to stay in the stroke longer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Rob's example and say five pounds of force on average times two seconds versus one second. I'm just going to stay in the stroke longer. Right? I'm going to stretch it out. But you end up going slower when you do that than if you were to sprint. So when I ask clients to do their regular stroke in the pool, for example, and I measure their impulse, and then I ask them to sprint and I measure their impulse, they move their arms a lot faster, and so the number of seconds goes down. But it's offset by an increase in force. So there is kind of this balance that we always have to make between stroke force and stroke rate, because that's what we're talking about here. This is the exact balance between stroke force and stroke rate, because it takes stroke force and it multiplies it by time, which is stroke is a part of stroke rate. Right? Rate is distance over time. This is just the time portion of it. So the data that we have here on impulse, all of these numbers that I have here, 19 pound seconds, 12 and a half pound seconds, because remember it's pounds times seconds, 17.9 pound seconds, 10 pound seconds. These are averages. 19 is the max, the max of everybody. The, the, the highest or the average of, of the individual strokes is 12.5. So you're looking at between 10 and 19 pound seconds. They don't mean anything. In many of the examples that I've showed you, 
and actually many of the much of the data that we see here so why even share this with you why even say oh impulse is great and here are the numbers for it that we're getting the reasons I say that we can't really use impulse on many of these servers, there are a few surfers that we can use impulse to start to see improvements. But right now, for the majority of the servers that went through this, their impulse is bad because, as we saw in the bad examples, they were pushing down or inward or outward or too soon or the curve wasn't good or they were slipping. There were too many issues when we measured them, and so we have to, we have to fix those things then remeasure them again. And with the, why I say a few of the surfers, we can do use impulse. A few of the surfers have done that. They've come back and we've remeasured and we've worked on things and then we've remeasured again. And we've done that a few times with a few of the surfers for follow-ups. And what we do is once they get the good biomechanics down, now we can use impulse. So if, for example, one of the surfers I'm thinking of has an impulse of say eight pound seconds on average. And we work with her on not just technique, but on strength now. Because if you have the biomechanics right, then you add strength on top of that. Oh, man. Now you're going to move. Now you're going to book it as long as you balance strength with technique. right? And so let's say her benchmark was eight pound seconds. And we, we work on that. And, we, and maybe she's with a, a, doing a strength program um, or or. or or exercising more, lifting weights or whatnot. And then she comes back and the biomechanics are the same, but she's stronger. Maybe she goes to 10 pound seconds. That is a, a that is a quantifiable, that is quantifiable evidence that she has gotten better at her effectiveness of her sprint stroke. Because at that point, when we look visually on the video, we're like, oh, yeah, it's, it's good. But we can't see if she's that much better, right? We can't see that she's, she went from 8 to 10 pound seconds, right? But here we can. So it's something that is much more quantifiable at that point and can be extremely useful to somebody to see whether or not their training program is working or not. But again, the biomechanics need to be good. And with, I'd say, 95% of the participants in the data that we're seeing here, these impulses, we, we didn't really use all that much. I described what the impulse was, but we needed to clean up a few more things and retest. But I think, I think when we look at this data, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to keep adding to this data but how how do you use this information now how do you go out and say all right well i just listened to rob for that you know however long this podcast is well so what what is that <laughs> what is that going to help me i think you got four takeaways here one don't focus on strength and of your stroke right you can be the incredible hulk that's great but if you're putting it in the wrong place at the wrong time, in the wrong direction, doesn't matter. That's what we saw. That's what we saw on the examples. That's what we see here. Right? Focus on quality of movement and the timing of that strength. Number two, I think a good takeaway here is 
go out and notice the difference between stroke force and stroke rate. Play around with these two concepts. Increase your stroke rate, meaning the speed at which you turn your arms over, but back off on your stroke force. Now, in the mind, that's very difficult to do. I see it all the time with my clients. I'm like, all right, do the same thing, but increase the stroke rate, but decrease the stroke force. And it is hard for the brain to figure that one out because all that surfers have been given in terms of direction for paddling at this point has been paddle harder or paddle faster. What I'm saying is separate those two. Paddle less hard, but faster. Or play around with the other way. Paddle harder, but less fast. Right. So there's this balance between stroke force and stroke rate. If you paddle harder or longer in the stroke, your stroke rate goes down. Well, I should say if you paddle longer in your stroke, your stroke rate goes down. If you paddle shorter, your stroke rate goes up. Right, so that's more speed, not force. But the brain, is it's really difficult when I tell you to paddle harder, you end up paddling faster. And that's not what I necessarily would like. If I say paddle harder and faster, that would be both. And that's what the brain always kind of translates it to. So play around with that concept. Separate force from stroke rate and play around with that. Third thing, how to use it this information play around with your force on different types of boards long boards mid length short boards and volumes right and see for yourself you know do you feel a difference in acceleration when you put more or less force into one of those boards now for me why i find that information so intriguing that the long board ends up being less force than being used in the short board is because when I'm on a long board, I'm, I, there's just so much more mass. And to get a long board moving, it requires strength. It doesn't need a lot of strength right off the bat. You need to build that strength. And once you get your momentum going, now you don't need to use a lot at all at that point because you're flowing so freely at that point. But with a short board, so I, was, I always look at a long board and I say, well, there's so much mass. It's very slow to accelerate, but the once it's up to speed, that momentum carries, that, inertia, that inertia carries over. Whereas a short board doesn't, as high, doesn't have as high of a top speed, but accelerates a heck of a lot faster, a lot faster. Actually, when we were doing that, that length volume experiment with Zuhair in, another, in the earlier podcast, when we got to the ocean portion, I always had to set up just a little bit further outside with the 8 than the 6 because the 6 you could basically just pop it and go. It accelerated so quickly. The 8 I needed to get that thing moving. Even though the volume was the same, that a little extra length, I needed to get that acceleration moving a little bit, a little bit sooner, the momentum sooner. So play around with that on different boards. Play around with the amount of force that you push and be conscious of that. Now, not when you're catching waves. Do it in between waves. You know, do like a like a four-stroke sprint and be conscious of different forces that you place in your stroke. So maybe one set of four, you go at like 30% effort in terms of force, but your stroke rate is high. 
Okay, that's important. So it's kind of going back to step step two or the second takeaway, like separating stroke force and stroke rate. In step three, it's like, okay, once you've separated stroke force and stroke rate, try this because otherwise you're not going to be able to do it. So maybe the next set of four, you know, you rest and then you do the next set of four and this time you're, you're taking it at like 60% of your total force effort and then 80% and then 100% and just see which one moved me faster, which one felt... Like I was getting more acceleration out of it. Fourth thing I think you can get from this information is really focus on acceleration rather than top speed. And this is kind of a hint on ideal wave catching technique. It's more about acceleration. So the, the key reward in your brain when you do it right, when you when you have effective propulsion and effective sprint technique, it's not top speed, it's acceleration. How quickly can you accelerate? Can you be a Ferrari, even if you're in a Buick? <laughs> right, so hopefully this helps out. Hopefully this was intriguing enough for you to listen for the whole episode. If you guys have any questions feel free to reach out. If you guys have any suggestions on topics, feel free to reach out and give me some suggestions or recommendations. And until next time, I'll see you in the water.